Bitcoin Optech newsletter number 215 recap. So we'll be walking through this newsletter largely in the order that it was published. And we have as co-hosts today, myself, Mike Schmidt, contributor to Optech and executive director at Brink. And Merch, do you want to introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Merch. I work at Chaincode Labs. I've been around for a few years and I contribute to various education initiatives, work on Bitcoin Core, co-host New York BitDevs and do other stuff. And then Craig, you want to give a quick introduction for the audience? Yeah, sure. I'm Craig. Uh, I develop Sparrow Wallet, which is a desktop Bitcoin wallet. Um, uh, yeah, so that's what I do. Um, uh, uh, yeah, been doing it for a while, while now, uh, and I would guess, um, yeah, it's it's sort of uh, somewhat known in the space at this point. And I know that the first news and only news item here is uh, your proposed BIP to the mailing list, but I think maybe uh, a little bit of further context for for folks on what you're doing with with Sparrow and and you know. What is the raison d'etre for uh, Sparrow, and and where does it excel where where other wallet softwares may fall flat? Like, why are you working on this project? And tell us a little bit more about it. Sure. So, um, as I said, it's a desktop wallet, so it runs on you know OS X or Windows or Linux. Um, it is uh, effectively, you know, I was uh, working with the Electrum client some years ago, um, trying to create a multi-sig wallet. Now, I quite like the approach of the Electrum client in the way that it is sort of a light client. Um, and it kind of connects to this server, which allows you to load any wallet without having to go and scan the entire blockchain you know that i think is a good approach unfortunately i was really battling to create a a sort of multi-sig wallet with a lot of different hardware wallets it was uh i could do it but it was sort of a bit of a hacky job and i just felt that um there needed to be a better way so that's kind of where it began was just this idea of trying to create a better interface for people to be able to do multi-sig but it really grew from there um, and I think, you know, what Sparrow does well is it allows people to really get into the details of their wallet and understand their transactions and what they're doing. Because for me, it's really uh, around trying to make sure that you are, A, being secure, you're not going to lose your funds, and B, being private. And trying to get both of those things right requires you in the Bitcoin space to understand what's going on. I don't think there's any shortcuts uh, if you really want to get both of those those right. So it's really a wallet soft, software that allows you to, um, you know, not only understand what's going on, but also has the tools for you to be able to, for example, transact in a private way. So you can, you know, use Whirlpool to coin join, you can create create a variety of private or privacy focused transactions um, and throughout that entire process you can kind of see what the wallet is doing when it constructs those so you get a better understanding of how to manage things uh, that's kind of what sparrow is is trying to do that's very cool i have a question actually uh, so you said you were inspired by electrum's thin client model uh, how does um, Sparrow Wallet get its data. Does it use the compact client side block filters or? Uh... No, it, it doesn't. It actually uses the exact same model that the 
Electrum client does. So it basically also connects to an Electrum server, which is, I think, becoming an increasingly popular approach. Blue Wallet uses it, for for example, and I think many others. So that's the approach that it uses. Um, Sparrow, you know, tries tries to kind of cater towards the, uh, I don't know if I can put it this way, but the sort of pro end of the market where you might have many different wallets that you want to load, many different kinds of wallets, and you don't want to sit around waiting for every wallet to kind of scan through the block, blockchain. And obviously having a fully indexed blockchain, which is what an Electrum server is, allows you to do those kind of things much more easily. Thanks. Cool. Well, I think that's uh, a, a good way to frame up the discussion, and I and I think it leads right into um, a need that you have in terms of the wallet label export format BIP that you've put together. Um, maybe <clears throat> to set the stage for the audience a bit, maybe just uh, a, a quick review of uh, existing BIPs that that have worked towards wallet interoperability, like the 32, 39, 44, and how does your proposal improve or, or augment that, that those already interoperable type BIPs? Sure. So right now, um, everyone, uh, you know, kind of who's been in the Bitcoin space for a while, almost the first thing that you encounter are these 12 or 24 seed words. Um, and those kind of represent, uh, you know, the, the sort of the seed, the kind of uh, master key to your wallet, if you will. Now, that is, those seed words are defined by a standard called BIP39, um, which is effectively just taking what is a very long number and converting it into these 12 or 24 seed, seed words. And, you know, um, look, it's, it's, it's a standard that's not without certain wrinkles, depending on your point of view. But the great thing about it is that it has been almost universally uh, adopted by all kind of Bitcoin layer one wallets. Um, and that really makes it great. For example, if you want to use a different wallet, you can easily just transfer your seed, seed words. And because there's this kind of universal support for it, your funds will appear in the other wallet. So that's really quite helpful and it allows people to avoid the sort of vendor lock-in that we might otherwise have. Um, now, what happens to your seed afterwards, there's a number of other stand standards that you mentioned there. There's BIP32, which defines a sort of hierarchy or derivation path that allows you to, depending on what kind of address you have, apply a certain path. And then every wallet uses the same path. And these paths are defined by other standards like BIP44 and BIP84, depending on the kind of address that you're trying to create. So these kind of standards mean that it's relatively easy for you to be able to move from one wallet to the other in terms of your funds. Where there's a gap, and this gets to the bit that I have proposed, is that you can't transfer the labels that you've uh, applied in your wallet from one wallet to the other, right? Those are very much siloed within the wallet application that you have. And why is this an issue? Wallet labels are most useful when they indicate the source of funds. So, you know, say, for example, you have uh, KYC coins from one source and non-KYC coins from the other. Now, generally, you'll want to not construct a transaction which has both of those sources as inputs into one transaction because then effectively you've linked them on chain and now effectively your no KYC funds are effectively now KYC for the most, most part. So, you know, how do you avoid that? Well, you can either use two different wallets or you can label those UTXOs. 
And that makes labels quite a valuable thing. And right now, you just can't. There's no standard that we have, or at least no, no bit that we have that allows those kind of labels to be exported from one application to the next. And that's really what this BIP is about. It's very simple BIP, actually. It's just about trying to create a stand standard which allows people to export from one to the other. So you mentioned the use case, one of the use cases for something like this being privacy-related and in, in being able to sort of uh, label certain transactions in a certain way based on where they've come from and uh, in, in inputs and outputs, I, I think, is also in the BIP. Um, are there other folks doing similar things in the space in terms of labeling that is is not privacy related for for example maybe accounting or, or other use cases yes sure so you know many people obviously have a need to take the financial information in their wallet and export it so they can use it within whatever accounting application that they have and you know that kind of leads me on to kind of the 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 format that I've tried to use use here. So, you know, if we look at the sort of general purpose uh, formats that we have, you know, often people are either trying to do their accounting in sort of Excel or they're trying to do it in some kind of accounting ap application. And usually the common format that we can say both of those type of applications will support is CSV. So that's another very um, important use, use case here is just to be able to take the transactions out of your wallet and say, right, you know, uh, I want to see what the labels were. I, I want to know what that transaction was for and I want to know what the next, next, next one was for. So you can get an idea without having to go in afterwards and perhaps relabel everything based on the amounts or what have you. Um, so that, yeah, that's, that's a good point to, um, to be able to do that kind of accounting work as well. You, you touched on one of my other uh, questions, which came up in the mailing list thread, and there was quite a bit of commentary on CSV versus JSON or, or other formats. Um, I know the, uh, the proposal had CSV as the underlying format, but there were some folks recommending JSON, I, and I know you have some opinions on that. Maybe you could... Uh, opine on, on why you think CSV is, is best and then also maybe try to steel man the, the JSON side of things as well. Great. So I'll start off with the JSON argument, right? The, the good thing about JSON is that JSON, if there's anything wrong with the formatting of that document, the sort of syntax, if you will, the entire thing just fails, right? That's both good and, and bad. It's good in the sense from a programmer's point of view is that you're never going to have to worry about uh, are there any formatting issues here? The JSON parser just handles everything, and if there's anything wrong, it just says, I'm sorry, I can't do anything with this. So as a programmer, that kind of takes the burden off you and just says, well, you know, it's not my issue. Unfortunately, there is quite obviously a downside to that as well in that, um, you know, if we want to enable other applications to be involved here versus just very specific applications that can write out a certain JSON format, um, then we are going to effectively limit the, the sort of the range and the ability of people to be able to work with the information in this export. And that was, for me, quite a big loss. So, so you know, I, I understand, and, you know, when you post such a proposal to a list like the Bitcoin dev list, obviously you get a lot of programmers who 
immediately see, you know, that there is a stand, stand standard which caters better towards the programming side of, side of things. But uh, I really wanted to represent the user with this bit as well. Um, you know, that's kind of been uh, what I've tried to do with work in Sparrow as well, just kind of always try and think of what the user would want. Um, and for me, I think it's very clear, and I can see it from talking to users as well, that the idea of having labels in a CSV format is a very useful thing. You know, you can export it to Excel, you can export it to your accounting program, you can uh, create your own labels and then upload them into the wallet application. So you can do that sort of bulk editing yourself outside of the wallet, which might allow you to do certain things that you wouldn't otherwise be able to do in, for example, a spread spreadsheet. So that's kind of the argument for CSV is that just gives a much, much, much broader set of people access and kind of interactivity with the labels in their wallet. Um, and I think that that's the kind of democratization that I was aiming for, for here. Now, the natural question is, is it possible to use CSV in a way that doesn't create a whole lot of headaches? And this is kind of where uh, I actually changed the bit from its original proposal um, based on the feedback that I got. So there is a specification for um, CS CSV. It's known as RFC 14180. And uh, it does specify pretty um, completely how a CSV can be formatted in a way that there is no chance of getting one that is incorrectly formatted form, 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 so long as that RFC is followed. And that, for me, um, is good enough. Whether it's good enough for every, everyone remains to be seen, right? We're in a process now where feedback needs to come in and ultimately wallet devs need to opine on whether they think that that's enough. But I still believe that the um, the importance of allowing users access to this form format is a goal that's worth aiming for. And I'm going to keep trying to aim for it unless it gets to a point where nobody is prepared to build this, this thing. So that's kind of where I'm at with that. So if one of the pros of JSON is its structured format. Uh, the, this uh, adhering to this standard CSV format may also achieve some of that consistency. I guess is that right? I think so. Yes. I mean, we're looking at a very simple form form, form format here. I'm sure everyone uh, you know here has used a spreadsheet before. It's literally a two-column spreadsheet. So there's not a lot of uh, room for variation anyway. So we, we go beyond what the RFC mandates and we mandate that the RFC must must be followed. And then we, in addition, only have a two columns. Uh, so, you know, there's limited, I mean, I'm, I know that there are people who've had issues with CSVs, but um, there's certainly limited, in fact, I don't see any scope uh, if those things are followed for CSVs to be unpausable in some way. So uh, that's what makes me uh, at least optimistic that we can still retain that, um, that wide accessibility feature. One thing that came up in the mailing list discussion was SLIP 15, and, and maybe, at least I believe it was SLIP 15, uh, a, a somewhat overlapping standard that's been developed and used in, in other wallet software for a while. Do you want to maybe compare and contrast what you're proposing with that particular solution? 
Sure. So that solution was uh, designed by the Trezor team at Satoshi Labs, um, and uh, it's it's got its, uh, a different intent. So the way that it works is it's it's if it's more of of if you can call this sort of an iCloud backup, uh, if you can see it that way. So what it does is it asks the hardware wallet, or at least, you know, whatever wallet you have, but certainly the wallet with the seed, it says, please, can I have a private key? And I'm going to encrypt the labels uh, with this key. Now, that's not so useful when you get to uh, coordinate a software. So that's what Sparrow is doing, for example, in the case of being a multi-sig wallet, right? You've got a bunch of hardware wallets or indeed just one and what you want to do there is keep the private keys on the hard hardware wallet there's literally no way to get get them off so with slip 15 we have a situation where the coordinator software cannot export the labels in that format because it doesn't have access to the private key and that kind of for me is a is a is uh, a reason that it, it it's it's not going to work as a general export form, 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 format. I think it's quite specific to what Trezor was was trying to attempt when they built built that. So Sparrow as this coordinating across multiple hardware signing devices potentially, uh, and the requirement of Slip to have the the private key in order to do this export and import process sort of makes it, uh, I guess it would be, be very hard to, to reconcile that. And so this is a, a, a format and a standard that's being proposed that would allow non, no, no usage of private key required to in, import and export these labels. That's correct. Yeah. So, you know, if, if, if we talk a bit about, you know, there, there is of course still a need to, uh, respect the privacy of what we're trying to deal with here. You know, if we look at the information that could be in this export file, we're looking at addresses, we're looking at transactions, and we're looking at labels on those. So there's a lot of private information here. And uh, what this um, uh, BIP proposal also has in it is the ability to take that CSV file and optionally put it into a zip file, and then with the zip file, you have a sort of encryption, which you can apply. Now, there's are some downsides to using zips in this format. Um, you know, zips are not only a compression utility, but also an archive one. So you can put many files in, which is not actually really what we need here. But the great advantage to a zip file is that again, uh, talking to the CSV, it's a tool that almost everyone has access to. So, you know, the ability to to encrypt things using this almost universally accessible tool, if you think about WinZip or 7-Zip, these are very common programs, it allows people to at least have a default of, I can encrypt this thing or I can decrypt this thing and not have uh, all of this privacy-sensitive information sitting around on my hard drive in plain, plain text, right? So that was important for me uh, to achieve um, in this sort of uh, very accessible way that I'm trying trying to write this, um, but do so, you know, in, in a way that uh, allowed people to to uh, maintain some degree of privacy around that kind of information. So, yeah, Craig, you've, you've sort of gone along with my line of questioning here. Is, is there anything else that you'd like to talk about regarding this proposed BIP or how, how it's been received or what you plan to do next? 
I think uh, in terms of next steps, um, it's really, you know, I kind of need to hear from other wallet devs um, whether they think this standard is something worth building on or whether they have any kind of issues with it. You know, I think what I've sort of described perhaps in an indirect way is we have two goals here. The first goal and the most important goal is that we have an ability for people to extract their labels from one wallet and add them to a second wallet. That's, I think, the most important goal. Uh, and, uh, you know, that's the one thing that I'm really trying trying to, to achieve. The secondary goal is allowing people access to these labels in a, in, in, um, applications outside of wallets. So, you know, I'm going to keep on trying for both. Uh, in the hope that I can get that across the, the line. Um, but, you know, if if I have to abandon the second goal, well, then so be it. Um, I guess, you know, if wallet devs don't like this for whatever reason, then I'm going to have to go go back and, and try and figure out a way to uh, improve prove on it. Um, but that's, that's kind of where the process is now. So I'm trying to talk to users. Um, there's a Bitcoin talk thread going on right now. There's obviously the Bitcoin dev um, list as well. And, uh, you know, just trying to, you know, talk about it, about it, about it here and other sort of podcasts. Um, yeah, it's, it's really just a process at this point. And I think it's worth saying that I haven't, uh, I haven't proposed a bit before, so it's very much a learning process for me as well. Yeah, I was going to ask that if this is your first one or not. Sounds like it is. So it, it seems like uh, you've gotten some good discussion going and it's just a matter of uh, coalescing users and, and some of the other pot potential um, software, wallet software in the space to coalesce around a, a final recommendation. Yeah, I think that that's, that's it. You know, I think it's, uh, you know, the, as I said, the most important thing is that other wallet devs uh, build whatever format we eventually decide on into their wallets. And then we've sort of achieved a level where people can export and import. Um, that's, I think, the most important uh, goal to achieve here. Well, thanks for joining us. You're, you're welcome to stick around as we go through the, the rest of the newsletter, um, especially since my co-host can't speak. Uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll, jump into, uh, we'll jump into the Q&A from the, the Stack Exchange. So this is a segment of our newsletter that we do monthly in which we comb the, the Bitcoin Stack Exchange for interesting questions and answers and then try to quickly summarize those in the newsletter. But the goal is to sort of somewhat surface this information for, for folks to, to dive deeper into the actual answer on the, the Stack Exchange. Um, so the first one here is, why isn't it possible to add an op return commitment or some arbitrary script inside a taproot script path using a descriptor? And the, the gist of this, of the answer here is that uh, script descriptors are being extended to use Miniscript, but that is still something that is a, a work in progress. And that's something planned for a, a future release. And even when that does come out, it'll only support SegWit v0, uh, that, that Miniscript extension. And it will be down, down the road where actual support for TapScript and this notion of partial descriptors could actually make it inside 
uh, Bitcoin Core as well. And then you'd be able to use certain descriptors to add in arbitrary scripts uh, using a descriptor. Uh, wh whether that's a, a, an op return is a valid use case or not, just any arbitrary script being able to be added there. Merch, are you here? Mm -hmm. Okay, Merch is not here. Uh, we can we can move on or Craig if you have any comments feel free to chime in as well if you're familiar with descriptors and, and taproot. Uh, nothing on that uh, in particular to add for, to what you said. Does Sparrow use descriptors? It does, yes. Uh, so you can with any wallet in Sparrow you can uh, extract it and you can also create a wallet using any descriptor. Um, so yeah, uh, it's it's uh, that was an important design goal from from the start. Cool. Our our second Q and A from the Stack Exchange is why does Bitcoin Core rebroadcast transactions? Um, and this user was looking at some of the code and saw that there was some code around rebroadcasting transactions and there was some delay associated with um, th that transaction rebroadcasting. And so Peter Willa, who's quite prolific in Bitcoin, but also quite prolific on the Stack Exchange of all places, um, answered this one and pointed out that because there's no guarantees of transaction propagation along the network, uh, you have you have this necessity that you'll need to rebroadcast a transaction potentially. And one example of that is, let's say you broadcast your own transaction to, and let's just say you're connected to one node and, and that node either drops or maliciously does not relay that transaction for whatever reason you think it's been relayed. Uh, so there, there could be a, a, that as like a sort of canonical, simple example of, of why your transaction might not be relayed to the network. And so there's this necessity to rebroadcast. And I believe that the logic is after 12 hours, there's a random interval after that in, in which the wallet software will rebroadcast that transaction. And so uh, that's, that's why transactions are rebroadcast. And the reason for the, the randomness is, is, I believe, a privacy-related sort of random generated timeout between the initial broadcast and subsequent broadcasts. And one thing that I wanted to make sure to put in this write-up is you'll see that there's three different PR review club meetings that cover uh, the general topic of transaction rebroadcasting. And so that I'm particularly a fan of this PR review club, which is a online IRC meeting that happens once a week. And there's one pull request that's reviewed and everybody gets some notes beforehand and then can go through those notes and then attend the meeting, uh, text-based meeting on IRC that, that covered that PR and there's a series of questions and answers. So if you're interested in the technicals, please consider uh, attending one of those PR review club meetings. And there's a few links to, to that with regard to transaction rebroadcast here. Um, I was gonna, I, I actually had prepped quite a bit for this uh, here. Uh, you've covered already the up return descriptive stuff or uh, was there something to- Yeah, yes. Yeah, so I, I think they, I, I know that you had some 
uh, feedback and discussion around that. So maybe you, you want to augment that with some of your discussions with the folks at Chaincode? Yeah, I, um, I think that the asker there had a misunderstanding between what it means to commit to data uh, and what it means to publish the data with the null data outputs. And the idea here was that um, they wanted to put an up return output into a tap tree. And uh, that doesn't make a lot of sense to me because if you put an up return into um, output script, it makes that output script unspendable. So it can never be printed to the blockchain because uh, you only print the one that you spend. So if it's in some leaf, uh, why would you put an op return there? And if you just want to commit to data, you could just write random data there, or you could just um, tweak the public key in the first place, and then you would still commit to what you want to uh, commit to without uh, needing an op return output. So anyway, uh, yeah, I, I did a little more research and, and tried to uh, chime in on that one actually later after we published it in our newsletter. Yeah, so I think I guess there's this differentiation of the exact particular use case that the user was asking about in that question with with the answer, which I, th I think the answer is informative and, and valid. It's just the, the original use case is, is somewhat, uh, I guess, infeasible or, or shouldn't be done in this manner, but... Like yeah, the, the answer still stands and isn't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The the answer is fine. I think that just one of the aspects of the questions, uh, like as a frame challenge, uh, was maybe not quite as clear as it could have been. Uh, basically, I'm saying if you want to write data to the blockchain, which some people have a use case for, then you want to create an old data output and hiding it in a, a tapered output doesn't make as much sense to me. Yep, that's fair. That's fair. And then anything to add on rebroadcasting transactions? Why Bitcoin Core? Oh, yeah. Uh, well, so we have propagation guarantees only for blocks in Bitcoin. And uh, so obviously, in order to stay at the chain tip, everybody needs to hear about the best chain at some point. So we guarantee that blocks are propagated to every single node on the network. Transactions do not have a propagation guarantee. They're relayed at best effort. So if you happen to forward to a black hole, uh, like a light client, or somebody that just doesn't forward transactions because they're only counting the nodes on the network and things like that, then you um, might not actually have um, successfully broadcast a transaction to the network when you submit it at first. So if you later realize that your transaction is not getting confirmed as you expected, you might want to rebroadcast it and submit it again. But that's a huge privacy leak because only the users that really care about transactions have a copy and retain a copy and, and rebroadcast it and want to make sure that it goes through. So by rebroadcasting, you basically reveal that you're either the sender or the receiver of the transaction. And uh, so the, the question was basically why, why the delay is 12 hours and uh, why we don't rebroadcast more quickly, why we have to rebroadcast in the first place. Uh, so in the long run, we would love to see it go to a very different model where every mempool actually rebroadcasts whatever they've seen not get 
picked into blocks where they should have been picked into blocks. So if you have any transactions in your mempool that have a higher fee rate than what's in the last block, you should resubmit them to the network and make people aware, hey, I have juicier transactions to include. And if all mempools rebroadcast all transactions this privacy leak of the sender and receiver on being the only ones that care would go away. Now, uh, what what is the the status of the shifting of the area of responsibility of that from the wallet who's interested in the transaction, whether sender or receiver, to the mempool? I know that, that that's been work underway, but are you aware of how far along that is? Uh, I think that the principal engineer working on that topic has not uh, updated that in a while and that was I think the last work on it was March last year so maybe at this point somebody there would be room for somebody else to get active on this effort Um, I I haven't talked to them though so uh, I'm not sure there was some groundwork laid and DPI was closed after some time after there was feedback and um, there were some considerations how to do it slightly differently, but yeah. Well, uh, you know, typical uh, Bitcoin Core sort yes. of internal where it's just hard work to keep rebasing and addressing all the the feedback, and it can be a sl- uh, a marathon. <laughs> uh, well, let's move on to the next question from the Stack Exchange, which is: When did Bitcoin Core deprecate the mining function? And I. When I see these questions, sometimes I think that 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 they're probably not applicable for the newsletter. Um, but then you see Peter Wooler with his encyclopedic knowledge um, put in a somewhat entertaining and informative answer, um, which is it hasn't. <laughs> so uh, there's actually a bunch of different ways in which over the years the the Bitcoin Core software has provided mining functionality and, and Peter goes through those. I don't know if we, we need to go through all of those now, but I think that the funny point is that, uh, you know, uh, on, on testnet, uh, or I, I guess if you're, you're running something locally as well, there's, there's still this, uh, built-in function that's still there for, for mining purposes. And then Peter also goes through a bunch of the RPCs and, and different, uh, ways to interact with mining that have been activated and then removed from the code over the years uh, with the the bulk of the optimizations having been removed for uh, maintenance purposes, uh, maintenance burden purposes. So a lot of that has since been removed to keep the, the code a little bit simpler. Um, but there does, there is some of that mining functionality remaining. Merch, any comments on here? That's pretty much it, I guess. Um, I mean, CPU mining became obsolete in 2010, and it moved on to GPU mining. Uh, so it just doesn't make sense to, to have a built-in functionality that people would waste electricity with in Bitcoin Core, because you basically the only way to energy efficiently mine at this point is to hook it up to ASICs in some manner, and we handle that via get block template. Yep, get, get block template, it, it seems, is still fairly used by mining pools and, and miners in the space. So that's like the main the main bridge, I guess, between them and the Bitcoin software. 
Uh, I believe so, yes. Yep. The, the fourth question for this segment is UTXO spendable by me or deposit to exchange after five years? And this was uh, a hypothetical question from an asker on the stack exchange about, you know, hey, I, I want to be able to spend this UTXO, but after five years, I, I would like it to be deposited into an exchange, which ignore the exchange piece, I guess the, you could generalize that more to having um, a, you know, a transaction that, that is able to be broadcast after five years, where, whether it goes to an exchange or not, is not germane to the technical answer here. And so Sticky's provided an answer, um, sort of building up the idea of what are Bitcoin script operators, how does Taproot work with MAST, and spending condition from you know a, a privacy and fee rate perspective, and then pointed out that due to the lack of scripts ability to to support covenants, uh, the the scenario outlined by the original question is is not possible entirely in script. Um, and then another user, Voitech, uh, I believe, pointed out that you you know while you can't do it all in script, this hypothetical scenario could be done by having pre-signed transactions um, so that you could have a spendable by me and then have this pre-signed transaction that's valid after five years be able to be stored for five years and then eventually broadcast. Um, if this is like an inheritance type thing, in, in theory, this spendable by me person is deceased and there's this pre-signed transaction that after five years could be sent to an address of that person's choosing. Yeah, or just uh, losing access to the original wallet, right? Uh, you might sure. have different uh, backups and backup strategies for those two. Uh, for example, in the case of an exchange, it's more of a social backup uh, that you can, of course, contact the exchange and um, via identification maybe regain access to the account. Um, so I think maybe... Let's get into two things here. Uh, the the one is um, one of the most simple kinds of covenants is just predetermining what sort of transaction you will want to do and then locking it to a block height. And I think that was described by Brian Bishop already, I want to say 2013 or so. And uh, essentially does this that. Uh, you, you make a predetermined transaction, you can um, print it out on a QR code, you can publish it in your blog post or whatever, and make it a public document, and that way can guarantee that it will still be around. Uh, since transactions are immutable and no third party can change the outcome of the transaction, once it is published somewhere, uh, it will be very easy to broadcast. Um, the other thing, of course, is um, the inheritance part. If nobody knows where to find that data and to pub that they need to publish it in order to get um, access to the funds, you do not have any uh, any benefit from it. So what's really missing is sort of a second part, some um, service that guarantees that it is also broadcast if the UTXO is still available at that time. And I think um, for inheritance and especially, we will get some neat new features via Taproot because 
you know, for example, you can create soon, hopefully, when we get Miniscript output descriptors, uh, hopefully in uh, 25.0 in Bitcoin Core, uh, you could have uh, a wallet that you generally use as a single SIG user with the key path, but then hidden in the inner key, you would have a, uh, sorry, as a tweak to the inner key, you'd have a tap tree that, for example, has script leaves that can be spin spent by your heirs. So you get the benefit of having single SIG with the low cost of transactions and direct access with one device, but you have also the option of falling back to the script paths. And you could, for example, put the uh, mini script descriptor into your will or something and your heirs would already hold the keys so even your notary couldn't steal the funds because you're not publishing the secret that is necessary to authenticate yourself but only the information with how to access the funds and uh yeah so i don't know if i would use this for inheritance but it's maybe a nice fallback for for a lost wallet our next question here is around the the value overflow bug. And I guess the high level summary of the value overflow bug is back in 2010, someone spent a half Bitcoin and the two outputs of this transaction each were about 92 million Bitcoin, which essentially created at the time a, a transaction that spent half a Bitcoin and got two outputs of 92 million, totaling 184, oh, is it billion? Sorry. Yeah, billion. 184 billion, billion Bitcoin. Uh, and that was due to some of the, the air checking. It, it looked like the transaction spent a total of, of negative 0.1 Bitcoin, um, but due to the way the, the the checks were done and sort of creating this very large uh, overflow number, it, it allowed the, the, those those Bitcoin to essentially be printed. And yeah, let me jump in here, yeah, maybe. Yeah. Um, so this is a curious one. The um, there was essentially a bug in how the values were checked. So when you build a transaction, you have to um, check that all the values are positive, obviously, and that the inputs are bigger than the outputs. And uh, there was a check for each output that it was a positive value, uh, but the check of whether the inputs are greater than the outputs was implemented as a, um, a subtraction of the input sum minus the output sum. And uh, whoever noticed this issue in the check uh, exploited that by creating an output, or rather two outputs that were so humongously large that while they themselves were positive numbers, when they were added up, they overflowed. And um, in the integer representation of uh, computers, when the first bit is negative, it uh, for assigned integers, it becomes a negative number. So those two very, very large uh, positive numbers when added up become one 
a negative number and subtracting a negative number obviously is a plus. So this allowed the creation of um, two times 92 billion uh, Bitcoin. Obviously that was not quite what the network intended and that block was later uh, reorged out, but uh, yeah. <laughs> so there, there was a period of time for a few hours that that we had more than the 21 million possible bitcoins for a few hours before that that fix was in place indeed and actually we can never have 21 million bitcoin but right that's uh, just in it <laughs> well yes asymptotically or, or close to, to 21 million bitcoins but okay yeah that that i that's an uh, interesting bug, and, and thank you for walking through uh, some of the details on exactly where that bug lied. And there, there's more information um, that, that we have in not only the Stack Exchange answer, but um, Optech has a, a small little write-up on it as well that we link to in the newsletter. Yeah, I also saw the million earlier. I have a pull request open to fix it already. <laughs> Oh, uh, yes, in the, in the write-up. Yeah, I think we have million and then billion elsewhere. So, all right, I'll take a look at that, PR. Okay, um, that's it for the Stack Exchange section. In terms of relief and release candidates, uh, we have this LND 0.15.1 beta, which, which has been an RC and is now, I think, officially just a beta release. I think we've somewhat discussed the items here, so I'm not... So if there's anything that you want to jump in, into on that release merge, or if we jump on to the code changes. I think we can move on. Okay, great. Uh, so jumping to some of these PRs, Bitcoin Core 23202, there is uh, an RPC that is PSBT bump fee. Um, and this RPC has been changed or, or augmented to be able to create PSBTs that you can transaction bump even if you don't own or you, those transactions, the inputs to the transaction don't belong to the wallet. So PSVT, partially signed Bitcoin transaction, and this RPC with bump fee allowed you to increase the transaction fee of that um, PSVT. But previously you had to, the, the wallet to own those inputs to the transaction, whereas now you can have, in theory, external inputs that are used in this RPC to create the bumped fee PSBT, um, and that could be then signed elsewhere. Yeah, I I think maybe we should give a more a bit more of a shout out to PSBT because um, any it it's probably a little underspoken how how big of a deal it is to have a good standard for how you can um, exchange data when multiple parties build transactions together and um, I think that maybe also Craig can speak to that but uh, just having this open standard that everybody has been implementing uh, will do a lot for us in the near future where people just much more easily can create transactions together, either from multiple devices or even multiple users. And of course, the idea is that stuff like that will help break the in common input uh, heuristic. 
Um, well, if I can jump in there, I mean, I completely agree. Uh, you know, I think the arrival of when um, Andrew Chow developed PSBT was very fortuitous for when I was building Sparrow. Um, you know, a lot of wallets have had to sort of reverse engineer it that were created uh, from an era earlier. Um, Sparrow was really designed around PSBTs um, and the idea that you can, you know, bring them in from any source uh, sign on whatever wallet you have. It just gives you such a flexible um, kind of central point or central format that you can then base a lot of things things off uh, the way that you can just sort of add to them over time. They just contain this wonderful tree of information that allows um, wallet developers to be quite flexible in the way that they build an application around it to, you know, eventually create a PSBT that has everything that is required to extract a transaction. So um, it's been a really uh, important development in my view. Yeah, and maybe another point that Craig reminded me of. Um, so in PSBT, there's multiple different roles defined. And um, there's, for example, the updater role, which is just the party that loads more information about the UTXOs and adds it to the PSBT tree, the, the information that is handed around. And then that enables, of course, signers to just um, produce the signature that is missing for the UTXOs that they control without having access to the actual blockchain data. So this enables much more, much easier interaction with air-gapped machines, hardware devices, uh, yeah, hardware security modules, that sort of thing, yeah. And I guess in a way this, this PR in the first place is just uh, a clearer use of, of the different roles here. And I guess while we're on the topic of, of fee bumping, um, the, the next PR here, Eclair 2275, adds support for fee bumping as well in the context of a dual funded Lightning Network setup transaction. So, um, Merch, I don't know if you want to give a quick overview of, of dual funded um, Lightning transactions to, to sort of prime the ex explanation of this PR and then we can explain why fee bumping might be needed for a dual funded setup. Sure, I can speak a little to that. When Twitter was first uh, uh, proposed, the idea was that two uh, users get together, build a transaction together in order to establish a channel. And then, um, well, we didn't have PSBT then, for example. <laughs> and uh, it, it was just hard to coordinate the transaction creation at that time. So the first simpler approach to take was that most channel got established predominantly with the funds from one side. And with dual funded, uh, or rather with single funded channels, one of the big challenges is that the full liquidity of the channel is only on one side. So the channel uh, owner that provided the funds, they can send funds to other Lightning Network participants, but they cannot receive any funds. And uh, with dual funded channels, one of the big advantages is that both participants immediately have funds, so uh, payments in both directions can be received and forwarded. Excellent. So in this PR, 
uh, augments that functionality by allowing that transaction to be fee bumped in, in, in the case that uh, uh, either that transaction hasn't um, been confirmed yet or there's some, some urgency uh, on getting that, that confirmed and the fee bumping is required. And I think in this PI, there, there is a limitation that I, that I believe that there's only um, one side of that dual funding that can actually initiate the fee bump. Um, but I think it's good progress nonetheless. Yeah, I don't know, sir. Uh, another eclair PR here is, is 2387, and just a fairly straightforward one. Add, eclair added support for Signet. Um, per, perhaps Merch, I, I don't know if we've covered Signet other than in passing in our discussions, in our, in our recaps here. What is Signet? Well, so if you want to test your application, you probably want to have a network that is as similar as possible to mainnet without actually putting funds at risk. And to that end, when you have a single machine, you could use regnet, uh, sorry, regtest, which is, uh, I think some people say regtest, um, which is actually just a, um, basically a network that you bootstrap on your own machine when you run the tests for Bitcoin Core. So it was never intended as a local testing environment to, to do other things and connect machines with. And it has a few limitations. For example, it is very hard to connect other computers to a reg test. Um, and there is no, like anybody that is connected can produce blocks and, and the whole coordination mechanism doesn't really exist. So there is a testnet, uh, which is essentially um, the same as mainnet. It's a global network that people with hash rate can connect to and produce blocks in. Uh, the standardness rules are not enforced on testnet, so you can do all sorts of crazy and weird transactions on testnet. And it uh, especially has a difficulty reset. If there has not been a block for 20 minutes, the difficulty goes down to one, and you can just produce a new block at essentially CPU hash rate uh, with no issue. Uh, that also leads to funny effects like when the last block in a difficulty period um, is mined after more than 20 minutes, it also resets the difficulty for the next difficulty period and then you get block storms on testnet where people just mine hundreds of blocks per second for a while until difficulty goes back up. So testnets become um, pretty large. I think it's uh, past the 10th halving already. <laughs> and um, the idea behind Signet is basically to make it really easy to have a um, playground that you can test in with worthless tokens that you can uh, easily start a new one of, a new copy just for your feature or your local um, computer network or your customers in the case of, of businesses trying to provide a testing environment for, for their um, user base. And um, it allows you to mine by signing blocks. Just there's some keys that you put in, and those keys are allowed to create new blocks. So essentially, it's it's um, um, <laughs> basically it's proof of stake, uh, but 
um, we just use it for worthless tokens, pretty much like any other proof of stake system. I hadn't heard that term before. Did block storm? Is that right? I mean, if you if you see like thousands of blocks per minute, then yeah, it's um, it's just uh, sometimes a little hard to keep up with it with lower end machines. Yeah, and I think you touched on this, but there there's somewhat of a default signet, and then you can also, as you mentioned, spin up your own signet in which you are the one or series of signers that can, can process those transactions and, and blocks or just process those blocks as well. Exactly. Yeah. But then it's in a bona fide network from the get-go. So other than reg test, it's um, made to be connected to by other parties too. Right. Okay. Let's move on. We, uh, uh, LDK PR 1652. We've had a sort of a flurry of these over the last month or so, uh, support or different types of support around onion messages. And to review, onion messages are a way to use the Lightning Network to send pieces of information that are not attached to an actual payment. And in this particular PR, there's the ability to send a reply path along with the onion message. So right now when you send uh, a message, it, go it goes along a series of hops. And when the recipient gets that onion message, and let's say for whatever reason, they would like to respond along that same path, there's, there's no information about that, that, that path that, that that original message took. And so along with the message itself, there's this ability to provide a reply path or certain hints, route hints to the recipient of that message so that if they choose to reply for whatever the use case is for these onion messages, there's this hint of, of where the message can be sent back. Yeah, exactly. So when we have onion messages, each layer only learns about the previous hop. So the recipient actually never knows who the sender was. And that's why we need to hint, hey, I sent that message. You can reply to me here. Great. Um, I, I'm not sure we've had a recap in which um, HWI has been one of the topics. Um, so this is a PR to uh, PR 627. And that, that is actually to the HWI repo. So uh, Optech is not just looking at Bitcoin Core or some of the Lightning implementations or some of these other projects that we think are valuable to, to have our eyes on. And one of those is this um, Bitcoin hardware wallet interface project, which is actually uh, a repo within the Bitcoin Core organization. Um, and the purpose of that repository is uh, an, an interface command line tool for interacting with hardware wallets or as we like to say, hardware signing devices. Um, and it provides a way to, to interact with some of those hardware wallets without um, having to deal with some of the specific drivers and whatnot. And uh, so this particular PR adds support for pay to tap root keypad spends using the Bitbox 02 signing device. Merch, do you want to augment any of the HWI explanation or do you want to dive into pay to tap or keep keep spends or let it lie? Uh, I think we've talked about that uh, pay to tap root stuff quite a bit already in the past 
Um, and I think you covered HW uh, just perfectly fine. <laughs> Great. I can actually jump in here with a little bit of sort of background sure. as to what um, Taproot supports exists on hardware wallets to date, which might be interesting. Um, so Trezor supports via HWI Taproot key part spends. Uh, you can go ahead and use that um, as of today, uh, so long as you have the most recent firm, firmware and you are using the correct derivation path, uh, which is defined in VIP 86. Um, Ledger also supports um, uh, Taproot uh, key path spins. However, it does not support uh, the SIGHASH default value, which I think was introduced in VIP 341. Uh, so you actually have to use the old SIGHASH all value when you, um, I believe, I don't believe that they've updated the firm firmware to support SIGHASH default yet. Um, so that's just something to be aware of. Uh, they do support, however, keypart spins so long as you use SIGHASH all. And I haven't actually tried to uh, do a keypart spend um, with my Bitbox uh, yet. I've only just seen this now. So uh, I will certainly go and give that a try. Uh, and see uh, if it's all working. Excellent. Thanks for that color, Craig. Uh, next PR, BDK. So this is another one of those non-Bitcoin, non-Lightning implementation projects that we think is valuable to surface changes to. And in this particular PR, uh, there is a change to uh, immediately verify ECDSA and Schnorr signatures after the wallet creates them. Um, and this is actually a, a, from the, the BIP340 spec. And I think Bitcoin Core has done this for a while now, and it's been recommended in the spec. It, actually, it wasn't initially recommended in the spec, but it, there's certain types of uh, attacks that could occur if you're not verifying that signature after you create it. And I, I will claim uh, a bit of ignorance on exactly why, what the attack vector is here, and maybe Merch, you can opine on that. I wish, sorry, um, uh, I don't have any color here either. <laughs> okay, all right, so I, the, the recommendation from uh, the BIP is to verify the signatures after you create them. There are certain types of, I think, nonce attacks that could potentially occur in which uh, verifying the signature after creating it um, can can mitigate that attack. Um, there's a few different links to previous Optech newsletters in which you can jump in. And I think there's uh, some information in, in Bib340 to read on that as well. The last PR for this week is actually two separate PRs, but they're in the similar vein in which uh, BDK has is providing uh, access to two additional services, uh, Electrum and Esplora, and a somewhat sort of just wrap, wrapper, uh, API wrapper for, for those different services so that if you're using BDK, you can call out to Electrum or Esplora, which is a block explorer service, to uh, get additional information that I guess is not in inherent to, to BDK itself. Yeah, I believe BDK has an option to run uh, on compact client-side block filters, and in that case, uh, it wouldn't have necessarily the whole block data and being able to then connect to Electrum or 
um, Explorer in the background would uh, serve a similar function as we heard earlier already with Sparrow. Makes sense. All right. Well, we are just over our hour slot here. Um, I want to thank Merch for joining as a co-host this week and for Craig for joining and telling us a little bit about Sparrow and his proposed wallet label export BIP and how that went. Um, any any final comments, Merch or Craig? Thanks for joining. Uh, it was very interesting to hear about Sparrow Wallet. Thank you. Yeah, great. Uh, thanks for having me on. Uh, it was great to have the opportunity to chat more about the wallet label export format. Uh, if anyone has any particular thoughts on it, please reach out to me. Um, I'm at Craig Raw, obviously. Um, and yeah, yeah, keen to uh, hear what people think.